Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 15th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight. About 40 minutes into the podcast, um, a new guest is going to come on the show from Politico. Uh, Daniel Lipman, one of their top reporters, is going to come on and fill us on in about a you know different political topics, a lot of national flavor. He's written some very interesting pieces recently, and we're going to discuss those with him. So we're excited about having Daniel on the show for the first time. But of course, as always, we have plenty of topics to, to discuss. And the other night. Uh, the Democratic field had their, I, I don't know, um, it depends on how you count it. Do you count two nights as one or what? But they had their first debate with a smaller field actually on the stage, not necessarily a smaller field all the way, although a few candidates have dropped out. But they had just 10 candidates on the stage, and this is the first time certain combinations have been on the same stage, like front runners Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. Um, Catherine, kind of give me some of your initial thoughts about the debate. Well, um, I thought there was a lot of um, a lot of back and forth about health care that went into the weeds a little too much, I thought. Um, I think we basically have two ideas, uh, Medicare for all and some form of the ACA, you know, ACA plus or, or Obamacare plus. And I think it was a little, there was a little too much back and forth. I, I found, I think there were other topics that could have been covered more, uh, you know, maybe more about climate change, more about human and civil rights that weren't touched on. But um, I think the winner was probably Elizabeth Warren and I think Julian Castro, while I didn't object to what he was trying to do, I think he went a little um, too far and ended up hurting himself and helping Joe Biden, which I don't think was his intention. All right, Tim, your thoughts on the debate? Well, uh, did this debate, change anything uh probably not a lot if if i had to pick a winner in this debate if there is such a thing in this type of debate i i would say beto o'rourke probably with elizabeth warren uh, also doing very well there's no way to know if it will give him a, a, a badly needed boost um Elizabeth Warren seems to be gaining momentum in her corner. Uh, 
she's probably at this point the most acceptable second choice of the other candidates' uh, voters. Uh, Joe Biden did have his best debate, but he still looks a little bit shaky at times. Um, Bernie Sanders really looks to be rather running in place right now, but his supporters are loyal, and they will stay with him, and that's going to keep him in the top tier of this race. Um, I, I thought that Booker and, and Buttigieg also did well, but at this point, the tears seem to be entrenched. And and Catherine mentioned uh, Castro. He, he kind of crashed and burned with his attempt to call into question Biden's competence as a result of age. Not only it, it did not work, but he also was wrong. What he, what he was accusing yeah. Biden of, Biden did not say, and the pundits just raked him over the coals about that after the debate, and, 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 and he, he might be done. I still see the top three as being Biden, Warren, and Sanders. All of them are above 40% approval among Democratic voters. Um, the second tier is probably still Harris and Buttigieg with Booker and O'Rourke right behind. And just hanging on were the other three on the stage, uh, Klobuchar, Castro, and Yang. And the other big winner, I thought, the other night, was a person who was not on the stage, and that was former President Obama. You know, he's been getting attacked a lot uh, in the earlier debates, but not so the other night. I think everyone kind of got the message that the... Democratic base did not want to see President Obama attack because he's very popular. Um, and and finally, I, I think anyone who did not make this stage, and there were ten of them, well, they, they need to go ahead and drop out. If you can't get 2% in the polls, uh, you, you know, you need, you need to be gone, so... Uh, one of those ten is going to be our nominee, and I, I'm sort of figuring now it's one of about three. So there we are. Yeah, um, and, and full disclosure. Uh, yeah, full disclosure. I was um, either at uh, a volleyball game in South Paulding County, which you can get out Google Maps and see how far away that is. Our merch and so some of the ten. Thin roads are on my way back, um, so I didn't get back until after 10 o'clock that night, and so I had to rely on um, reports afterward. And then, uh, you know, people like Chris Higgins and the DC Daily and different sources will give you some really good snippets of it. Um, and, and I think, and also uh, one Tim Shiflett will give you some good text um, while it's going on. <laughs> Um, and that helps too, because that let me know what to look for with the Castro stuff. Thanks, Tim. Um, but I will say this, uh, Joe Biden, I heard the snippet where, um, he, and I believe it was Bernie Sanders were kind of getting into it. And he says, well, to be a socialist, you have a lot more trust in corporate America than I do. And I know that was a packaged and a planned line, but it was pretty good. And sometimes a sound bites do help. So I thought that was, uh, you know, one of his best lines of all the debates put together. 
Uh, and so that, that was kind of the winner for him. And then also it's kind of like a, a, a sports event, uh, whether it's basketball before the shot clock era or football where you run, 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 and you grind down the clock. If Joe Biden can make sure nothing happens very noteworthy at these debates, he grinds down the clock. And this debate was very much just grind down the clock. Uh, nobody really um, scored any big points on him. And the one person that tried, uh, Castro, took flack for it. And so that's kind of a winner. Uh, y'all mentioned Bernie Sanders. Um, I, re- I heard that he had the third least talk time of anybody on the stage in this past debate, which is pretty unusual for him in debating. Usually he kind of interjects. I think his voice was a little uh, uh, having some trouble, and that yeah. may have played into it. Um, and, and therefore he had the third least, and he's one of, you know, typically the top three polling candidates. Um, so that was uh, pretty intriguing as well. And then Better O'Rourke, maybe it was because it was in Houston, maybe because he spoke on guns. But when he said, we're going to come after what he termed your weapons of war, your AK-47s and your AR-15s, he got a pretty rousing applause. He got a lot of attention afterward, uh, and that was a huge plus as well. Um, Any thoughts on why Bernie Sanders uh, didn't get more talk time? Tim? No, you don't pay attention to that sort of thing a lot during – Debates, although sometimes you'll suddenly notice that one fella hadn't talked in a while, or, or one one of the uh, female candidates hadn't talked in a while. Uh, interestingly enough, one fe- uh, person that I did notice that was talking a lot and turned in the second most airtime was Cory uh, Booker. I, I I don't know how he kept managing to interject himself into it. He wasn't interrupting people or anything like that. He was just skillfully uh, getting getting into the conversation on just about everything and turned into second most time. You know, I was going to say a while ago though that five thirty eight dot com is doing something interesting. They were polling people about the approval of their of the candidates. Before the debate, and then again after the debate, and the, and you could actually see arrows going up and down. Uh, Biden, for instance, lost two points of popularity before and after the debate. Sanders lost a bunch. Warren gained a bunch. Uh, among this group of voters now that they were talking to, she was the most popular one of them. Uh, Harris is is hemorrhaging for some reason. Buttigieg went up. O'Rourke went way up. Booker went up. Castro went down in a huge way. Uh, and Klobuchar uh, and Yang both gained a little bit. So, so I, I'm not sure how Yang gained anything. Did, did, did you see what he did at the beginning of the debate? That's not... He pulled. We, you we remember that, Catherine, where he was offering it. everybody uh, ten people a thousand dollars, like he's a game show host or something. Uh, uh, <laughs> about Alex Trebek. Well, there's, some and, question, there's some question about whether that's legal. Um, yeah, I think that was <laughs> a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, I think that wasn't. 
I think that's an attempt to uh, prove the um, the meaningfulness or, um, you know, how that would help people and yeah. how it can, it, you know, pull people it, out of poverty or, it, or you know, it, it, help them it, it pay It came across, debt. though, as a publicity stunt. People were openly laughing in the room, and it just didn't play very well. Mm. Yeah, apparently Pete Buttigieg actually laughed and then made a comment. Kamala Harris was uh, caught laughing, and um, a bunch of them kind of laughed at it. And well, there so was a then whole it, nervous, then a, it, a whole nervous yeah. dinner went went all the way through the room. It it was. Uh, and, and so, therefore, the seriousness of his proposal kind of got mocked, um, and, yeah. and that's something – it's kind of like you just know that something like that's probably not going to happen in 2020, 2021, but it's when that autom- automization well, really puts a ton soon. of people out of work. Well, it's, it's going to have to – there's going to have to be enough people out of work and different things uh, – before I think it, and I listened to a book by a guy from the Netherlands that actually, I guess, had the concept before Yang, and it is an interesting theory, but I just think it's it's one of those that's probably not going to happen yet because we're not at that critical mass, particularly with the unemployment rate being rather low at the moment. Um, and so it's kind of going to be one of those that kind of things that it may happen down the road, and people are going to remember Andrew Yang um, was the first guy that brought it up. Um, but then he's got to well, actually, he's I think, to, have I mean, more this issues. This has been a topic of conversation for decades. It's not the first time it's come up. Oh, well, there's this some is, place in Canada that actually tried something similar out. Um, but, but you know, we well, try to pay for people's health care and stuff and, and, and pay, or pay, you know, food for people, and people say that people are leeching off the system. We have people in America that are so, you know, like anti-welfare – that something like this, we're going to have to really retrain people's psyches for it to be palatable in America. The, um, the concept, the concept is is great. The earned income thing, that, that that's the guaranteed income thing, rather, it, it is is a great concept. But the way he presented it the other night, I'm picking out yeah, that ten people. It, it, it was like it was all of a sudden a contest. On a game show, that's the way it was yeah, presented. Right. It was, it was not a good, uh, a not a good angle. It, yeah. it was awkward, and it just opened itself up to being openly mocked. And, and some people in the room, like like I said, just just went to laughing, and it, it just it didn't it didn't work. I, I saw what he was trying to do, and he needed to try something. He can read his poll numbers like the rest of us can. Those in the bottom part of the field are trying to separate themselves and somehow move toward that top tier, and that was his attempt, and it just it it, it did not work. Yeah. It, to me, it didn't come off like game show. It came off like Publisher's Clearinghouse, where it was going to be that <laughs> random, any family, you know, it just it, 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 the way he hit it. Um, well, let's go back to something else y'all talked about before we leave the debate itself, and that was um, – President Obama being praised in this debate after an earlier debate, um, he was criticized at times or not um, 
you know, sufficiently praised, if you will. And I think it's – and I know all three of us will watch Bill Maher uh, when we can, and there's a lot of talk about, like, this Twittersphere and social media. Is there a, a smaller group within of influencers that are further to the left than, of President Obama that criticize him? And I've shared tweets with y'all that pull just, you know, Democrats that if ripped both he and – First Lady Obama and the same thing, you know, just as bad as you'd expect to hear about George W. Bush or something. Um, and I think that maybe in the past, some of the candidates thought, well, I, I need to play to that small group. But then they saw the poll numbers and the greater feeling of the larger Democratic Party. And the larger Democratic Party really likes and respects President Obama. Um, and, and they kind of course adjusted with some of them. Um, Catherine, do you kind of get that feeling that maybe uh, that earlier they were playing to a smaller field, and now it's kind of like, well, the larger Democratic electorate feels more this way? I think that might be it. I mean, you know, I, I have a great deal of admiration for President Obama. I thought he was a wonderful president, but he made some big mistakes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with um, with a candidate talking about that i mean he made some big mistakes on immigration and on trade and and you know uh, we he shouldn't be untouchable in those regards i think part of the reason that people were criticizing him was to distance themselves from biden i think you know it was a way of um you know i'm not biden i'm not all in with Obama, but I think you're right. I think they realize that um, unless you're having a very lengthy and in-depth conversation, you can't really just randomly criticize uh, President Obama because it's it's visceral. You know, we all love him and um, admire the work that he did as president. So if you're gonna if you're gonna criticize him, you need to have some either really strong uh, talking points or you need to have a lengthier conversation. You can't do it from the stage of a debate. Well, and, and a lot of things. One, I mean, everybody's fallible. Nobody's going to be perfect. Oh, yeah. And, and hindsight is twenty twenty. Two, if we wanted to hear somebody criticize President Obama, President Clinton, President Carter, we could turn on the Republican debates. I know they're not going to have any of this cycle, but that's what they do. Um, just like, you know, the Republicans, they don't spend their debate talking about what Ronald Reagan or, or George H.W. Bush did wrong. They talk about what they don't like about the other side. Um, so, therefore, I think that it's, um, you know, we don't want to hear our own guy criticized. Yeah, it's kind we of. To, it, we don't have to be like them. Well, but but why do you want to criticize your own person? I mean, here's another thing that President Obama did that some of the other folks hadn't done. He won, and not only won, he won twice. You know, he he actually found that ground where he could put progressive ideals in a frame where he could get the requisite number of electoral votes. Um, and sometimes that's kind of well, hard I'm not, for us. I'm not, I mean, you heard what I said. That's that was. Yeah. It's not the right. It's not the right um, arena to criticize President Obama, but there are things that President Obama can be criticized for, and if you're trying to make changes, it sometimes makes sense to highlight historical errors. 
But uh, again, I don't think that a, 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 a debate is the right forum to do it. Well, no, uh, t- Tim, your thoughts on, on well, attacking it, President it, Obama and his legacy? Well, it it didn't work. That's, that's one reason they're not going to do it anymore. And secondly, people did not hear it as someone trying to, you know, say he made all these mistakes and Joe Biden was with him. What what the average person at home is is hearing? They're not hearing Joe Biden. They're they're hearing. Right. Wait a minute. They're criticizing President Obama and President Obama compared to this guy we got now. He's a wonderful man with no scandals, no stains. Uh, he uh, upheld the office with dignity. He's the person we admire. Imagine a Republican debate where they all stood up and criticized Reagan. How 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 far do you think they'd get with the electorate uh, on their side of the aisle on that one? And secondly, and someone made this point astutely on one of the uh, talk shows, um, I believe it was on NBC, as a matter of fact, where they said, you know, we, we heard all this criticism of President Obama why aren't they criticizing Trump like that? Why why is he not the focus of the criticism? And and they make a good point there. That's who we're going to be running against. And uh the fact the fact Catherine's right, he, I guess it was brought up to start with because Joe Biden was his vice president, but uh so so many of those people worked with some work for and and knew President Obama very well, and more importantly, all their voters loved the man. So uh, I, I think that's that's something they just figured out after a little blowback. They had to get off of that, and you just didn't see it the other night. It was more of a love fest. Yep. Well, let's kind of continue to move on, and something that we seem to really know a lot about um, is our own state in Georgia. Um, The other week we had a really extensive conversation on the two uh, U.S. Senate seats. Well, we have a new candidate, and the Senate seat we already knew we had, and so let's talk about that candidacy, why he picked that race, and everything about it. Either after we went off the show or definitely by Monday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I guess they get the credit since that's the home state paper, um, John Ossoff was an announced candidate, uh, which that wasn't a big surprise. But the fact that he picked the race that already includes two mayors and a um, former lieutenant governor nominee – and the other race has no one, including a GOP incumbent, uh, might have been a little surprising. We're talking about John Ossoff, who ran um, unsuccessfully but very strongly in a traditionally Republican district in Atlanta's northern suburbs. Um, Catherine, uh, your thoughts on John Ossoff running and the seat he decided to run in? Well, I think that that's the seat you want to win because it's the full term and and uh, nobody wants to run again in two years. Is it two years? Yeah. Um, and I think he feels, or someone, whoever, between himself and who, who's ever advising him, 
thinks he has a chance of winning that seat. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. Um, I was kind of surprised uh, that he decided to run it all after Amico got in. And that, so now we've got, you know, four people running uh, so far. And, uh, you know, it's just makes it difficult for Democrats, I think. But someone must, there must be some polling or some inside information that, he has a good shot at it, whether he has gotten, has raised a lot of money for it, or I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't, I haven't, I haven't really studied it yet, but clearly he, he wouldn't do it if he didn't think he could win. One would think, uh, Tim, before I get your thoughts, I'm going to admit I was wrong. The other week I called Teresa Tomlinson, um, uh, a winner in this because I felt she was leading that field and the fact that um, that new seat opened up, I figured no one would else would get in that race, that this open seat would be more attractive. Uh, former congressman, U.N. ambassador, and mayor of Atlanta, Andrew Young, he endorsed her right after that. Um, Hank Aaron, who is a um, very active in Democratic politics, even though he's known for uh, being the greatest home run hitter of all time, uh, he endorsed her. And so you're thinking that, okay, if, if some of these, these two big political heavyweights that are not based in Columbus, that are based in Atlanta, um, are supporting Teresa Tomlinson, that, that probably means that there's not much more action in that race. And then here jumps in John Ossoff, who is supported, from what I understand, by um, John Lewis. Uh, your thoughts on what he's done? Hmm. I still wonder if perhaps she is not the front runner. Uh, I can understand everyone wanting to go after the full term. I do not feel that it would be the easier of the two races to win. It, it seems to me that an open seat would always be easier to win than uh, depending on you know who the governor might appoint. Uh, I, I don't see how they could be a stronger candidate than an incumbent U.S. senator is, uh, especially one with the last name of Purdue. Uh, and you got you got all the heavyweights in our party that were talking of running in one race, and the other one is just wide open. You set up a scenario where uh, some Democrat that wants to move up in a hurry that no one's ever heard of just says, well, you know, the heck with it. I'm, I'm going to go for this other seat because I can avoid, you know, uh, Tomlinson and Amico and Ossoff. I can avoid these people. And uh, I've got to wonder about one of these uh, candidates, guys. Talk about great moments in bad timing. One day before Senator Isaacson announced he was going to resign uh, at the end of the year and all of that, one day before he did that was the day that uh, Sarah Riggs Amico got into the race. And I'm wondering if she is sitting there thinking, man, if I had waited one day, I could have had a choice then. I might have chosen to avoid 
butting heads with these other candidates, spending a fortune, and I could have basically entered the other race as the favorite to get the Democratic nomination. Do you? Either one of y'all think that thought might have crossed her mind? Yeah, but there's no nomination because it's a jungle primary. Still, still, don't you think? Or jungle general. Yeah. Still, don't you think, though, that it would have been better to take your chances in the race opposite the one that both Ossoff and Tomlinson are in? Well, I mean, I will say this in fairness. She didn't know about Ossoff because he got in later. So he had, well, she uh, didn't know about Isaacson. Had, she, she didn't yeah, know she about didn't, that. That happened a day uh, later. But to me, this – and I kind of thought this back in the 2018 campaign. She is a political newcomer, and I know she tries to use that as an advantage, the fact that she's not tied into you know, career politician and all those buzzwords that they like to use in commercials. But to me, this shows that she's probably not that tapped in to um, political networks, for good or bad. Um, since I like political networks, I don't see that as a negative, but some people might think that's a – positive that she's not but like if she you know i would think that um teresa tomlinson and ted terry and john ossoff would understand how the pieces fit together at least on the democratic side as far as all that inter-party politics better than she would um you know for, for better or for worse um but i want to bring it back to um ossoff and a few things one um, i listened to chris higgins he did a really long uh thing on um, John Ossoff the day after he got in It was either Monday afternoon or possibly Tuesday afternoon Really good and he talked about how He said from his Grant Park home And I thought Yep that's not in the 6th District of Georgia that's not even that close um, That's deeply In the 5th um, Did he move back to the 5th District Or did he never even live in the 6th District when he was running Do y'all know Catherine Tim? He never. He did not live in the sixth district. When he, he was didn't. Running. No. Yeah. No. They, no, they, they made some hay big, off of that too. The yeah. Republicans did. Yeah. My 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 grandmother lived in Ormwood Park, which is next door to the Grant Park neighborhood, and so those are very different places. And so I just thought that was kind of interesting. Um. And, and maybe that's why Lucy McBath uh, got those additional votes. Maybe because she had uh, lived more in that area and and because there's just different issues and different things going on in those two places both have fine things going on about both of them but they're just different um so i thought that was interesting and then um they also went on to talk about how much he raised money and how you know he raised millions of dollars more than anybody ever has in georgia congressional politics and in some ways congressional politics in the whole Catherine, you got something? I think it was more than had ever been raised in any congressional district. Yeah, and it was it was really astounding. But then I have the question, and he will answer this during this campaign and what he does. Was it that it was a special election and it was the way for the Democratic blogosphere, whomever, because I know Daily Co's uh, David Neer got onto this race very early and uh, pushed a lot of online donations to him. Was it that it was the only game in town and people from all over the nation got active and gave to that cause, 
Or was it something that John Ossoff was able to do, that something, a skill set he has, something about his personality and his agenda? Now, I have my own theories on that, but this campaign is going to prove it right or wrong. If he raises money hand over fist and he raises tens of millions of dollars to run statewide in the Senate race, I'll say, man, that guy's a good fundraiser. But I have a funny feeling against all of the other races throughout the nation that his fundraising is going to kind of be like everybody else's. And I'm not saying I could rub two nickels together either. I'd probably suck at it, uh, fundraising. But um, I, I just have a funny feeling that it's the, it was the time and the place, not the person. Uh, Catherine, thoughts? I think, I think it was a combination of being a special election and also – like the first thing after um, Trump got elected for people to get excited about. So I think it was both. I think that it was a a combination of those two things. And I don't think he's, I I mean, you know, good luck to him, but I don't think he's going to have that kind of success in fundraising this time around. Okay. I think it sounds like two for two. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Go over to Teresa Tomlinson. No, well, Teresa yeah. Tomlinson has already, you know, gotten some of the uh, donors, and then you, he's going against Sarah Riggs Amico and you know Ted. I don't know how much money Ted can raise, but it's just a different climate than it was when he was running before. Mm-hmm. Tim, your thoughts on the fundraising? It, it, it is. He's. He's not the guy that everybody in the country is rallying around that Hollywood is sending money to, that people on the Internet uh, all over the country are sending fives and $10 bills to. Um, and, and, and therefore, I, I just don't think he's going to have anywhere near the uh, success that he had before. And... Uh, uh, let, let's not forget, as as wonderful as his fundraising was, he didn't win. He didn't right. win. The next year, that. Lucy McBath, with a fraction of the resources, won that seat, uh, number one, because I believe she was a better candidate with a better message, and, and no, number two, she was running against an incumbent with a record that she could point to entire to Trump and run on the, you know, a, a, a very compelling issue in the city of Atlanta, you know, um, or any major city, which is uh, gun violence, of course. And uh, so you, you you can raise all the money in the world, but, but you still got to be a good candidate. And I'm not really sure that Ossoff showed me that he was a very good candidate. Um, yeah. So uh, he, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say because he enters this race that he's automatically the favorite. I really don't think he is. I still think Tomlinson is. Yeah, and, and I tell you this, um, uh, Lucy McBath, when she got in, she had a story to tell. Uh huh. Yeah. just kind of lacked that story. Now he's a little bit older. He's now married. Uh, you know, so he's gone through some life changes. That typically would mature a person. Um, I, I, I still don't know that the compelling story is there. He just seems like a guy in search of an office 
more than the mm-hmm. office in search of a person. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I just I, I don't know. I just uh, it's I, I mean, still, if I had to vote today, and you know, there could be more candidates in the race, there could be things that happen. My vote would still be with Teresa Tomlinson um, uh-huh. at, at this point. So this didn't change me, nor did Riggs Amico getting in change me. Um, Catherine, where do you kind of feel these candidates are kind of fleshing out? Well, I haven't heard anything from really from Tara Riggs Amico. I mean, we haven't seen her in the news, I don't think, but I've seen. Um, uh, yeah, I'm with Tomlinson all the way. Yeah. I just well, think she's a better let's... candidate of all. Of all four, I just think she, you know, she's got experience. She's very well spoken. She's um, been working it, you know, for a long time, and clearly um, has work that she wants to do. And um, and it's a natural um, step for her. It's not unusual to go from the mayor of a of a city to run for a statewide office. So I, th- I, I'm, I think she's a better candidate and will be a better senator than the other three. Yes, and let me uh, give you all a question to talk about for just a minute um, that's related to this. There's still rumors that Lucy McBath may run. Um, mm. Y'all can talk about that, but then also, Tim, uh, did John Ossoff, since you would think there'd be some connection the fact that she kind of took over that race from him she might have reached out to his campaign or him and said you know what did you learn um so they may have some communications um does this announcement by Ossoff kind of give us a hint in what Lucy McBath might be doing Hmm. well I I would like to just go on record as saying right now, if if, if Lucy McBath, any of her advisors are are listening, uh, I really would love for you, Congresswoman, to stay right where you are. I know it's a big move up to the Senate, but, but A, we need you and your voice in the Congress we believe that you can hold that district where others might not be able to. We uh, also want to remind you that running a statewide race is quite different from ru- running for reelection in a metro area uh, congressional district. It's just two completely different things all together, and especially in the Purdue race. I, 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 Catherine, don't, don't you think the, that that race is really full right now, pretty much? That race is full, and I, I agree with you 100%. I think Lucy's, uh, Representative McMath is doing a great job in Congress. She's making a name for herself. She's um, being recognized. She's part of this great freshman class, and uh, she's got support. I think it would be a big mistake for her to jump into either of these Senate races. I think she, you know, maybe after she completes one uh, one full term, she could think about that. But, I mean, obviously the timing isn't that great for her. But, but I just think having her in Congress is so great, and 
I, I'd hate to see her give that up and then, like you said, run a really tough statewide race without any, you know, convincing um, information that she could necessarily win. Whereas I agree, she has a much better chance as an incumbent to keep that sixth district uh, seat. So I, I hope she's really, you know, being very deliberate in her thoughts about this uh, opportunity. Yeah, not not to mention the fact that uh, the Democrats control the House. They yeah, they probably are not going to control the Senate unless we have a massively wonderful election night next year. Therefore, she has a chance to make her voice heard in a more meaningful way in the House, even though there's more, you know, people in the House, and a much better chance to move along and move up into leadership quicker than she ever would being one of a 100 and a backbencher in the Senate. And as you said, there, there is just no convincing evidence out there that she could win a statewide race like that, right? Right. right. I, I, I agree with you all. I don't, uh, go ahead, oh, Catherine. You're back. No, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm through with my thoughts. Go ahead, Catherine. I'm through. Oh, that's okay. Um, guys, uh, we're going to continue on with the next topic. Um we're going to try this again some other time uh, with, with our uh, predicted guest, and um, but we'll move on. We have plenty more things to talk about, but I'm going to talk about something that we're going to bring back to Lucy McBath in a little while. That was the special election in North Carolina. Um, it was uh, the two Dans running against each other, a different Republican candidate than last time, but a pretty infamous one that uh, sponsored the what's been called the bathroom bill, um, and uh, he did win uh, the, the special election, but it was close, but the election results were not the same county by county, if you will, than they were in um, 2018 when there was um, some really suspect uh, voting totals in different places that caused the election to essentially just be vacated. Um, Tim, kind of give us more details on that race. Well, uh, Dan Bishop did defeat Dan McCready. Uh, the numbers I have, and I believe they're the final numbers, uh, Bishop got 50.73% of the vote. McCready got 48.67%, about a 2% difference, a little less than 4,000 votes. Um, then this was a district where uh, Trump won by 12% and Romney by 10%. And we are gaining in districts like that. But uh, number one, obviously gerrymandering still works in North Carolina in favor of the Republicans. Uh, for instance, like after the two, 2018 elections, as well as we did in the country, the Republicans still had 10 House seats out of the 13 in North Carolina in a state that elected a Democratic governor and 
and all of this stuff. Um, rural areas, and, and we'll get into this in a moment, but they actually saved Bishop the other night. The further you got away from the city of Charlotte, uh, the 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 better he did, and he overperformed in some of those rural counties, and that's probably why he came back late in the night and overtook McCready, who had been leading all night, uh, pretty much, and and won. We are seeing something continue, though. We are seeing suburbs. Um, turn away from the Republicans uh, by more and more with every passing election, and we're seeing the opposite in rural counties, such as the one I live in. Republicans are doing better and better. We are getting a distinct gap between the two now, and this proved it the other night. Now, the good news about this is that McCready next year, because they're going to have this little special election, they're going to have to turn around and run again next year. And McCready can still run as the outsider in a presidential election year in a toss-up state that's going to be an intense battleground, and a lot of people are going to come out to vote. I really think he has a better chance to win next year than he had the other night. So I'm not going to say it was great news for Democrats, but I, I still think they should be a little bit hopeful, and the Republicans really should be worried uh, because eventually just the sheer weight of population in suburbia is going to overtake these rural counties. What do you think, Catherine? Um, let me check the, Sorry, the board. No, we're good. Sorry. Okay. Um, I think uh, I agree with you all the way. Um, and I think the other thing that, you know, I I hate to hope for this, but I, um, I think that we're going to face some economic struggles between now and 2020 election. And I suspect that that may have an impact on those rural votes for Democrats as well. I mean, I hate Mm -hmm. to predict that, but I think it's, it's, I think there's going to be some upheaval, and I think it's going to hurt Trump. And hopefully, it will it will trickle. Hopefully, that information will trickle down to some of these rural areas, and some of these rural voters will wake up and recognize that he's not helping them. But I, I otherwise, I agree with everything you said. You know, David, she just made a very astute point. Uh, about rural areas, if there is an economic turn, uh, turnabout, if, the, if, the, if there's a downturn, rural areas, because of the lack of infrastructure, uh, jobs, all of that, are going to feel it first and hardest, even more so than, say, the metro area of Atlanta, which is the economic engine of the state now, the way the state is set up. Wouldn't that hurt Republicans immediately? Well, you would think if they put the blame on who's in charge, and that's traditionally what's happened. Of course, um, traditions may go out the window. Um, and, uh-huh. and really, 
the economic, um, you know, there's been some economic recovery probably, you know, several years ago now. It, it started under President Obama, and, and it's just as far as unemployment's continued on. But really, the cities have seen that far more than rural areas. Rural areas may not be much different than some of the um, downturn that was started under George W. Bush. It's just been kind of a constant malaise. Um, and so, therefore, but other areas and more populated areas, are, you know, have seen the uptick. And it's so funny, the people that are Trump's base, they're not getting the benefits, and the people that don't like Trump are getting the benefits, um, which then, you know, you can get how much does uh, the presidency really have impact over um, the economy, uh, because that's a long argument that's gone through many, many presidents, not just the current one. Um, but back to this um, race in North Carolina, Dave Wasserman probably had some of the most granular, detailed reporting on it. And um, he's the first one that noted Roberson County um, and the Lumbee tribe. Um, in Mecklenburg County, Dan McCready did better than he did in 20, um, the 2018 election. And so you would think if he did everything else the same, and he did just as well in Mecklenburg County, he wins. Um, and this is not the core inner city of Charlotte. This is more the um, outskirts, more the suburban areas, kind of like Georgia 6, and I'll bring it back to that in a minute. Um, and then um, he did you know, much more poorly in one county in particular, Roberson County, where the Lumbee tribe is. And he actually explored this further and um, found out that Dan Bishop, while he was in the state Senate, sponsored a bill to open up more grants to the Lumbee tribe. And I really don't know um, much about that tribe, if that's a part of the Cherokee Nation or if that's its own separate entity. And I find it now intriguing that they are still there in North Carolina and did not get removed to um, Oklahoma. Good for them. Um, but but there's still this uh, sizable population there in Roberson County, and is it that um, more rural white voters just turned out in Roberson County? Were there, like many places around the South that are rural areas, have you know decent, sizable pockets of African American population? Were those folks not turned out, or was it that this Lumbee tribe either a turned out in bigger numbers for Dan Bishop, or b? Um, uh, just or just decided to vote for him and kind of switched their votes, if you will, um, which would be one of the rare cases uh, in recent memory where um, a Republican reached out and successfully got votes from a community of color. Um, so it's pretty fascinating, um, and it's so specific to this one district, but things like this can happen in district after district after district really across the nation, but in particular the South, because I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, the big cities in the South, that's where the uh, minority populations are. But really, every decent, tiny little city uh, in the South has uh, minority populations, and, and people might look at the county but not realize that there's this population in each of these counties that can be reached um, and, and may affect a lot of races. Um, um, Catherine, your thoughts, or, or Tim, you're wanting to say something. So your thoughts on well, this I, dynamic? Well, I was just going to make one point uh, be, be, before we go to Catherine. Um, 
the numbers that I saw seemed to indicate that this tribe did not vote in the numbers hoped for um, at, at all, which is odd because you would think that McReady's people would have been out there camped on their doorsteps to get them to vote, but for some reason they didn't come out in in uh uh, nowhere near the numbers that the surrounding population did, and it it, it really it it, it might have it, it 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 was a lot of votes right there that that didn't come to vote. Okay, so yeah, yeah. I don't. I, 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 I don't really have any thoughts. I don't really have any thoughts on it. I think that clearly there's work to do in that mm-hmm. county to get those. If if they aren't voting, they need to be convinced to vote and they need to be convinced to vote for Democrats. Well well David, then you tell me how could they have been overlooked? Because that's what it looks like. They somebody didn't get out there and get them to vote. Yeah. Or or I mean I do find this interesting what Dave Wasserman reported that Dan Bishop actually sponsored a bill they probably liked and maybe they didn't vote because it was kinda of like the middle ground. We don't like some of the national politics Dan Bishop will uh, give to us, but then he gave us this on the state level, so we'll stay out of this one. I, I don't know. That seems kind of weird. That's like two, you know, three-dimensional, you know, electoral chess. Um, but but it, you know, and it, it kind of is. There's transactional politics, and and that would be, you know, transactional politics is the most straightforward um, if that did kind of occur, if you will. But let's get back to that sixth district. Of Georgia. Now, Mecklenburg County moved even further in this special election, a suburban Charlotte area, to uh, the Democratic Party. It sounds very, very similar to both Georgia 6 and really Georgia 7. If this, if Georgia 6 is very similar to this district in, um, or this part of the district in Mecklenburg County, wouldn't it make Lucy McBath's reelection? That much easier, and she'll be the incumbent, not running against the incumbent, uh, Karen Handel. And then we can kind of add on to one does this even move Georgia 7 further up the target list since it's um has a lot of the same uh trending, more democratic suburban demographics? Uh, we think, Catherine, I agree with you, I think that's absolutely true, and I think the seventh is going to be a real challenge for the Republicans this year. Especially since it's an open seat. Yeah. Tim, your thoughts on this demographic shift? My son lives in the seventh. I drive I drive through there all the time, all over that district. I'm here to tell you that district is changing dramatically. It's gonna flip next year. I cannot see any way with what I've seen the population do in that district, that that it could possibly not flip. Our, our voters are moving into that district in massive, massive numbers. Uh, you've seen what's happening out in Gwinnett. I mean, it, it, it's remarkable. That one's going to flip. The sixth, um, I do think McBath is going to hold, but I, I don't. I don't overlook Karen Handel. Uh, she she can run a good, solid, high-quality race 
with some good people that we know helping her. Uh, she is not to be lightly discounted. Would you not agree with that, Catherine? Catherine, are you with us? Um, Sorry, I lost my, I lost my phone for a second. I agree um, with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and here's another thing I want to throw in is to me a kind of a loser in how this whole year in Georgia politics has gone down. And, and really, he started it before this. Rob Woodall was known to be a anemic fundraiser, just did not do his job as an, as an incumbent on getting money raised, was not a good campaigner. Let's say good old Rob was known in the Republican circles as a hard worker that raised the money, that did the campaigning, but his district was just trending so Democratic, there was no way he'd be able to hold on to it. Wouldn't he be a really um, possible choice to be tapped for that U.S. Senate seat if he was well-respected for his political acumen? But since he's not, I just don't even think he's on Kemp's radar. What do you think, Tim? No, I, I don't think he's on Kemp's radar at all. I think Kemp now is going to uh, – Kemp could go in one of three directions. He'd put one of his own people in there. He can make a bold statement by putting uh, some – say some African-American Republican um, that's coming up in the ranks, some, somebody like that in there to hold the seat, or – uh, my personal choice is still to try to seek out one of the heavyweights in the party and see if they will either come from Washington or come out of retirement to uh, to hold the seat. Uh, but I do not think Rob Woodall is is in in the mix. And you're right, Rob Woodall quit because he saw the the handwriting's on the wall out there. Um, in, in his district, you, you you saw what just happened out there, and it's come from nowhere, hasn't it, guys? Yeah, it, it's just trended so fast. And young African-American uh, Republican, Tim, you must be listening to the Kudzu Vine a few weeks ago. Somebody said that on this very <laughs> show. Um, C- Catherine Rob Woodall, did he kind of mess himself up by not uh, honoring his craft more? Well, I don't know if he messed himself up. Maybe this is what he had in mind retiring and going back to do something else. Yeah. I mean, he had uh, I to know that he wasn't a good, he had to know that he wasn't doing a, doing a good job in those, in those regards as far as fundraising. And so, yeah, I, I'm to I don't the point out there. I'm, I'm to the point with that particular um, district though, that I just think the, the strongest Republican uh, would have had trouble holding it for much longer. The demographics yeah, are just moving at lightning yeah. speed out there, much faster than the rest of the state is. That's that's, that's just the way it's happening. And <laughs> remarkably, in our lifetime, and in, in just a matter of a few years, we have seen one of the most Republican counties in the United States turning blue almost overnight before our eyes. Um, yeah. Yay. And, well, I think, <laughs> and, and it really, I mean, if Rob Woodall was working really hard and they were like, oh, that's the way to save him, just like I, I said before, kind of after those elections, 
you could have re-redistricted because we know the Republicans will do it every two years if they have to. They could have taken the 6th and the 7th and made a north and a south instead of an east and a west and saved Rob Woodall if they really wanted to. I just don't think they had much use for him because he didn't work very hard. Um, and, and, you know, a party that talks about meritocracy, I guess for once they lived it, and, and kudos for them on that one time. Guys, we got about a minute, um, and I do want to talk about this because it's going to get old, at least one of them. Uh, so let's talk about South Dakota. Uh, we'll save what's going on in Alabama for a future show since I think it's still ongoing. Um, but South Dakota has had to close up their Rapid City offices and their um, – I'm forgetting the name of the city that's in the eastern part of the state that's really their biggest – Grand Rapids? Uh, it's, it's their biggest city in the eastern part of the state. I'm sure they have their office still in Pierre, which is the state capital. Um, help me out with y'all South Dakota – Geographic knowledge on that large city well, on the eastern I, half of the I, state. I can I can help you out real quickly. Then Good. South Dakota, the party now has no office open anymore. No, no office in Pierre, the state capital. No, I just no, no no office open hmm. due to financial troubles. Employees, it has been announced, will now work remotely. Whatever that means. From Fargo, Bismarck. <laughs> I mean, uh, that is uh, really From their sad. homes, uh, from their basement computers, but the party is broke. They're down to like $3,000 in the bank. Uh, to show you what that means, we have that much up here in our party treasury in Little Chattooga County. They've been spending $2,400 a month on rent for those offices and $14,000 a month in salaries. And uh, to to make matters worse, a recent audit showed that the party up there had violated numerous campaign laws, and uh, they they are they are they are in some they got some problems up there. Okay, Catherine, do you want to buy the bus ticket to um, Pierre or Rapid City for Tim, or do you want to open up the GoFundMe account? Because I'm telling you, Catherine, by the end of the night. We can have the Tim Shiflett takeover of the South Dakota Democratic Party going. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, the article I read um, made it sound like, you know, all the information that Tim just said, we probably read the same article. I think, um, you know, they need to raise some money. They need to get their ship in shape um, and, you know, file their proper – FEC stuff and do all that, but I don't think it's nearly as dire as the other states that we aren't talking about. So, um, and you know, we only have one office in Georgia. It's not like we have um, offices all over the state. I mean, they don't have any, but they, but the idea that they close that they had three and they closed all three is shocking. But I mean, we only have one, so. Yeah, I mean, but, but then, of course, Atlanta, the capital and the largest city in the state, whereas Pierce, their largest um, city, it is centrally located. Uh, but I really need to pull up a map, map of South Dakota. That la- I went through that city like seven summers ago. It, it's by far bigger than even Rapid City, which is where Mount Rushmore is. I guess they could say Thomas Jefferson's running that party, um, at, at least in spirit, <laughs> since it's uh, head on the mountain. Um 
unfortunately, there's two Republicans and a Federalist up there with him. Uh, better Republicans than the current ones, though, to be fair. Um, so it's just kind of interesting and sad at the same time. And what does that portend? I guess there aren't um, – there's not a lot of pressing races um, in South Dakota this time. But, you know, what happens when there is that uh, U.S. Senate seat or governorship that w- looks winnable? Um, you know, how do we make a plan? And, and, Tim, I will tell you one thing. I've decided we'll actually give you the bus ticket to Mitchell so you can live in the Corn Palace. Far more interesting than anywhere oh, else we oh, can get you to live. Oh, oh, Joey. Yeah, right. Yes. Hey, two presidents have visited the Corn Palace in its 100-plus-year history. When it opened, McKinley visited, and then nobody visited for about 100 years, and Barack Obama went back on the campaign, I believe it was in 2008, before he became president. So um, uh, the Corn Palace uh, had quite a span between um, presidential visits way back when. Well, until uh, next week, it's been the Cozy Vine. Not everybody. I'll see you guys in three weeks. Give us more details on that. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment. The American people.